The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm alone in the remote recording studio today. On this week's show, Medea and I are speaking with E.J. Coe about her debut novel, The Liberators, a sweeping tale of struggle, survival, and the search for peace that tracks the lives of two Korean families over more than 30 years and across two continents. The Liberators is also the LARB Book Club selection for winter 2024. The LARB Book Club is one of the many perks of our membership program. As a book club member, you'll get a title handpicked by our editorial staff delivered straight to your door every quarter, as well as exclusive access to discussions with the author and LARB staff. To learn more about these and other membership benefits, check out lareviewofbooks.org backslash membership. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash membership. And now, without further ado, let's get to our conversation with E.J. Coe. We're excited to have E.J. Coe with us on the line today. E.J. is a Seattle-based author whose previous work includes the poetry collection A Lesser Love and her multi-award-winning memoir The Magical Language of Others. She joins us today to discuss her debut novel, The Liberators, which is also the LARB Book Club's Winter 2024 selection. Spanning more than three decades in the life of two Korean families, The Liberators explores how love, war, and survival move across borders and the fraught terrain of personal history. Opening amid the brutality of the Korean dictatorship in the early 1980s, we follow the story of Johan, a dissident in his 40s, and his 24-year-old daughter, Insuk, just about to be married to Songho, a boy she meets during her first year at university. When Johan disappears, Insuk, her husband, and her mother-in-law decamp for the United States, where they build a life first in California and then in Washington. Shuttling between the trauma of the past and the desire for a reunified Korea in the future, Insuk navigates the fractiousness of her relationship with Songho, the possibility she glimpses in the future for their young son, Henry, and stakes a claim for her own desire in an affair with a charismatic man who shares her dream of a restored Korea. Moving through its sweeping history, The Liberators keeps the painful and the poignant stories of its characters firmly in focus, unpacking not only how we survive history's wounds, but how we survive the surviving itself. Welcome to the show, EJ. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a big joy to be here. So EJ, I just let's just start with how you came to this story. Sure. It's interesting. The, the whole book really asks so many questions, but I think one of the central questions is about borders. There's so many borders and boundaries that appear, and that's not only the DMZ between North and South Korea, these borders between nations, but also borders between and within communities, like the Korean diaspora here in the States, but also the borders that we have within ourselves. And I thought it was interesting to interrogate 
well, what happens when we cross those borders? What sort of happens when we let our own borders down? I think when you're thinking about borders, would you mind my asking you your personal, sort of your personal history with borders, with how you've experienced them? You know, I think everybody kind of has their own relationship to these big, somewhat abstract questions that are, of course, never really abstract. They're like historical and physical and experienced by us every single day. So I'm also just curious about how have you sort of interacted with that, with the idea of borders personally? I'm interested in how a country, Korea, being divided, the division of the country by U.S.-Soviet forces after World War II, especially after the Japanese occupation of Korea, you know, this feels like history with the capital H, but how does that appear in our lives, our individual lives? How does that appear in my family and within my community, this sort of split sense of self? And and there are many ways that this appears in my personal family history, which goes from Jeju Island, which is the island off of South Korea, popularly known in Western cultural circles with the sea women, with the diving sea women. But my family has roots there, but also in Japan and back in Taejeon, where the novel begins, and then in the States here, especially the West Coast. Other boundaries I've thought of mainly happens in this Korean diaspora in the Bay Area, this Korean Catholic community, where I was raised, and I think we think of community as a safe space, especially when you're immigrating here and this community is all you have. It has the language and culture and a place in which you can be held. And community is a really big, important part of many of the conversations we're having today. But it's interesting because for these characters and even growing up, what I've seen is sometimes it's within your community that you're hurt the most. It's where you're the most vulnerable. And sometimes you think that this safe space is where you'll be taken care of. And it's the exact opposite. And so I really wanted to ask, well, what are the edges of this community? And I think that's where borders and boundaries come in. Because, well, as you go further from the center of that community, what's happening is you're becoming more of an outsider. Yeah, I want to put a pin to actually talk about later because I'm I'm fascinated about this question of kind of what I was thinking about, especially obviously in Insook's tale, which everything is threaded through multiple POVs, but I think hers is the one that I found the most resident. Though in the later parts of the book, Sung Ho's story gets quite complicated, I think, like the kind of inner life. But I am interested in these like cleavages and bonds of community, like how community kind of can cause us to amputate certain things about ourselves and our experience while also shoring us up in a number of important ways. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about the historical novel as a form. So The Liberators is, I've been thinking about it, it is an historical novel, right? So as we were saying in the introduction, it kind of moves across roughly almost 40 years because we start in the beginning, the 1980s in Korea with the Korean War. And then we move through to, I think the last like main historical event that I clocked is the seawall ferry sinking in 2014. So we have this historical span. It's a multi-generational novel, but it doesn't 
have that kind of, for lack of a of a better word, and my apologies to the historical fiction writers out there, of having that kind of characters inserted into a textbook history where we get, for lack of a better phrase, like a kind of blow-by-blow of history that's inflected with human lives. It seems like you're doing something actually quite different with the Liberators, where I think one could even if you did not know the kind of major events in Korean history that inflect those roughly 35, I guess, years, you're still getting the story, a very accessible story of a family that's going, two families, I guess, that's going through a series of major tectonic shifts against the backdrop of kind of political changes in in Korea and then the diaspora experience in the U.S. So, Forgive my blathering, but with that kind of setup, can you just talk about how you thought about The Liberators as an historical novel or as a way of walking through a particular history? That's such a wonderful question. And it's really quickly, I love listening to Radio Hour and I love listening to all your interviews, especially being a part of that conversation with so many incredible books that you cover. So I knew coming in that there would be some incredible questions asked today and that I, and that I am ready. I'm, I'm ready to be excited and thrilled and surprised by the questions and conversations that you start for me and for so many other people. And I'm sure that even after today, I'll continue to thinking about your questions. But when I'm thinking of the historical aspects of the novel, it's interesting. I, I also have a, a sort of push and pull relationship with history, especially during my doctoral research at the University of Washington, where I studied Korean American literature, history and film. And what was interesting was that history with kind of in big, bold letters at times is something that the characters are able to live beyond, not because of history, but in spite of it, in spite of what history has said has happened or not happened, in spite of the lack of reparations, the lack of things that should have happened or that history should do for them, you know, history for these individuals, but also these certain communities and entire countries that are sort of cut out of this conversation. I think what happens is that these individuals are able to live in spite of history. In a related way, I'm also fascinated by how you thread throughout the novel multiple POVs and to kind of construct this timeline out of them. And that includes, obviously, your main characters from the family, but also prison guards or this prison guard who is kind of overseeing Johan. And even there's moments where the family dog is the POV. I'm curious how this actually relates to the question of history and who experiences it and how it's experienced. So can you talk a little bit about how you, even just how you plotted the novel, thinking about it through multiple POVs, and was it always that way? Or was, I imagine, a version of this novel that's told entirely from the POV of Insuk, for example? Oh, yeah, that that would be interesting. But you're right that the novel started with many... POVs. It actually started with even more. And I sort of narrowed it down to maybe what feels like the, there isn't a protagonist necessarily, but there's a lineage that feels like a protagonist that Insuk is sort of carrying 
throughout the novel. But the POVs have, have always sort of been there because it's been something on my mind. And it's it's so wonderful. There's these authors, Dory Lobb and Shoshana Fellman wrote this book called Testimony. And in it, they say that the process of testimony gives us a real a human example of what liberation is and its vital function. And the idea that many of us are children of survivors or survivors of different atrocities or events, national events, we are all part of that testimony. We're part of this sort of lineage of testimony. And it seemed that it was important to have those POVs almost be a testimony to not only the prisoner, but the prison guard, not only the son, but the the family's dog. It, it was important to understand and unravel what is this lineage that we're all a part of. And in order to do that, we have to underscore the testimony of everyone, the perpetrators and the collaborators, you know, the murdered and the survivors, the prisoners and the liberators. I mean, so maybe we can talk a little bit more in detail about, about the book. It begins very much by focusing on language and the development of language and sort of figuring out how do we relate language to our experience? When does language begin to break down? And in, you know, within the first chapter, we sort of see see how that happens in real time. And I mean, I don't think it's giving anything away to, to say like that language breaks down because of violence, intense violence. And that's when it seems like we first lose the thread between figuring out how to talk about the world and relate to it and also how to talk about our experience when then when those experiences get so bad, we simply cannot talk about them. And I wonder what you think about that. I mean, partly in terms of like your experience with language and feeling like how much it can express. And do you feel like there were times when like it really failed you? Like you really couldn't you know, your job is to do it I guess, <laughs> and figure it out. But are there moments when you were like, God, how am I going to talk about this? That's such a beautiful question. And I think it's one that I'm continuing to ask as I, as I work through language and work through writing. But it's interesting when when I think of that question, I'm brought back to my work in translation, because I think if poetry gave me an idea of, of communicating and stories and images, I think translation really gave me a subject. It gave me something to focus on, because it was while I was translating Korean poetry into English that Typically, you're taught to have a clean translation, which is you're translating Korean as if it was written in English originally. And so there, it took me many years, even after school, to realize that there's some form of erasure going on and that everything I was doing automatically, there were choices in what I was doing and that those choices have consequences. And I think I started to think about, well, okay, these these aren't just languages that I'm translating, they belong to two countries. And those countries have histories that have a relationship together. And me translating a historically non-dominant language like Korean into English in this way was a sort of violence that I was enacting through my own work, that I was 
perpetuating. And I think I, I just took a moment, even if you look at the dialogue in the novel and you look at some of the ways the phrases go, I was thinking that when I'm translating a historically non-dominant language like Korean into a historically dominant one like English, I'm considering that I want to translate it in a way that when you read it in English, you know that the Korean is still present. You know that it is Korean that you're reading. And I've kept some of the sounds, some of the grammar, some of the way the rhythm goes in Korean so that I'm not erasing Korea from this translation. I'm inviting Korea's presence into it. And that was so important because even, you know, many of the battleships that are stationed in Korea, they're all in English. You see English in these big, bold letters, these names in English on these ships. And you, I started to ask, well, what am I doing as a translator and what do I want to write about? So I think that really led me to a lot of the subjects I'm writing about today. So there's a way in which the novel, as you said, it's focusing on, at least in part, on the problem of borders, right? And how we could say intergenerational traumas, but also stories and life experiences kind of move very fluidly between borders that are both actually physical borders, right? So national borders, well, which are also imaginary, but let's pretend for a second <laughs> that they aren't, or they're constructed, but also kind of these more imaginary borders of time, family, and other kind of relation. And I was very fascinated early on in the book, you describe Sung-ho, who is, so Insuk is Johan's daughter. Johan opens the book, as Medea was saying, with this kind of reflection on language and then the sudden kind of loss of language when he enters military service and kind of his experience afterwards. But then his daughter falls falls in love as complicated and freighted in, in this book. But Sung-ho is described by the narrator as, quote, a nihilist about country, but practical about love, right? So they have a kind of arranged marriage. Insuk's father, Johan, tells her to marry this boy who she meets in university. But Insuk feels like almost exactly the opposite, right? She has throughout the book a kind of romance of both Korean unification, but I think also a romance about what it means to be Korean or to be from Korea and what the idea of Korea is. So this seems to be at least very, at a core level, kind of one of the things that complicates their very fractious relationship as husband and wife, but also as two people from the same place who encounter that place quite differently. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how that kind of a relationship to country, but also a relationship to romantic love kind of splits along these two characters. I'm so excited to hear you ask this because it's such a treat. And I said it was a big joy to be here, but such a treat for me to hear what you're reading and what you're finding and the connections you make. And they're so wonderful and so incredibly deep and close read and so thoughtful and it makes it feel like, okay, it's happening. <laughs> it's this, this, this is just, you know, I think this is one of the best parts of this whole process is getting to be in conversation and listening to you. So thank you. Thank you both. I just want to say this is so exciting, but thinking about this relationship to country in this 
relationship is interesting because I think it's the way we remember country. I think it has a lot to do with memory. And for Songho, and I have so much feeling for Songho because I think Songho's memory, his personal memory, is in a way infused into state memory. It's infused into what we were talking about history. And so that in a way that he remembers things in a way that allows him to survive. If he doesn't remember things that way, he can't move on. He can't leave. He can't keep going to his job. He can't do the things that he wants to do. And so there is this quite a bit of conflict, but also a feeling of understanding for Songho that this is sometimes you remember things because you need to live. You need to not be imprisoned and taken away after protesting and then be sort of ostracized in a very small place. You kind of need to move on. And for Inzhok, it's interesting because I think she's kept those things separate. She's kept the state memory separate from personal and collective memory. She knows the horrific things that have happened. She's seen the atrocities and she knows sort of where the the losses happened and how they affect her and her family. And so she she didn't infuse those things. And that gives her a very different perspective and a very different will and heart and also a sort of a romantic love, not just with Songho, but with the way she remembered that Korea could be, that um, it should have been, but isn't able to be. I think there's that with her. I'm curious if I can just push like a little bit more on this question. If like, because if we have this setup, right, so that Songho is nihilist about country, but practical about love. And I can see how that would work both for his relationship with Insuk, but also when her father disappears, right? And we learn later, of course, that he was captured and eventually there's an interesting relationship with the prison guard, but eventually he is killed. And when they are looking for him, Insuk is, I mean, to my mind, I think this is more American, I get, but that's more the way that I'm processing it. That she's like, we have to find, you know, we have to put it all out on the table to find him. And Songho is kind of like, but if you start asking questions, you know, you don't want to get yourself involved in whatever this is. And then he also seems to, he has this like odd practicality, which I think later in their relationship, again, to my reading, like, comes across as as a cruelty. And so I'm wondering if you see a linkage between a kind of romantic imaginary that can be mapped on not only to relationships, but also to one's relationship to place and to country, and a kind of more, to use this word, nihilist or practical relationship, which is really about survival. Which then it makes me wonder if Insuk's story is about not just survival, but also thriving. Whereas for Songho, it can really only be about survival and a certain kind of self-amputation. It's so true that for Songho, it is about survival and that his practicality, which you know, you're able to hone in on and you, you find that later it is a form of cruelty. It's a, it seems like a form of violence and a physical violence as well toward Insok. Because what's interesting that is that throughout the novel, you see that history changes. You see that the place changes and you see where they live. All these things are changing. The economy is changing. And 
thing with Songho is that he doesn't change. In a way, even in those most cruel moments toward the end, if you look at him, he's exactly the same as that moment when he was looking for Insook's father. So we see him as almost becoming more and more cruel, but it's actually the world has changed around him and his image, like the, his thoughts, his imaginary, his beliefs, those things haven't changed. But you can see how something like that has to change. It becomes outdated. It becomes something that can cause violence when initially it was something that was supposed to help him survive. And I think that's just such an interesting point about Song Ho and his relationship to everyone around him because it does affect his relationship with In Sok. It hurts it tremendously. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with E.J. Ko, author of The Liberators. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Lexi Freeman back with us on the line today. Lexi's the author, most recently, of The Book of Ein, and she joins us for this week's book recommendation. So, Lexi, what book are you recommending? Well, I'm recommending a book called To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life, which it's not exactly a funny book. It's a book by a French writer called Hervé Gibert, who was writing in mostly the 1980s. And he wrote this extraordinary book about his struggle with AIDS. And But he does manage, despite the book's content, which is about him discovering that he is sick, to find incredible humor and absurdity in his experience. And there's just the most incredible chapter on Thomas Bernhard, where he talks about just being horribly jealous of Thomas's career and um, just writes this like rapturous sort of takedown of Bernhard, which I think the world could, it could use a rapturous takedown of Bernhard. He's so sort of beloved. But it's just, I really love this book because it it's raw and it's grotesque and it's all the things I love about Hervé's writing and it's messy and um, I guess it's the kind of writing that I feel grabs you and doesn't let you go until the end and that's, I think maybe that's the kind of writing that we need in this world where we're all always checking our phones and we have no attention you literally need to be sort of grabbed by the collar by a man who is dying and telling you how insane and beautiful and terrifying that is. So if you feel like <laughs> feel like having that experience, <laughs> I recommend to the friend who did not save my life. So how did you first encounter his work? Because I've read, um, I've actually not read To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life, but I have read some of his his other work. And it is always, as you're describing, it's very ev- evocative <laughs> is maybe the word that I would use. Yep, um, yeah. There's some several scenes that I don't think I will ever quite be able to forget <laughs> from Vayer's work. But I'm curious, kind of how did this book make its way to your reading shelf? Kind of were, were you looking for like an AIDS memoir or, you know, how did you get connected to this work? I think this summer, a friend recommended Crazy for Vincent, which is one of his novellas. And I just found it so 
outrageous and funny and wild. And that's just the story of his obsession with a younger man, I think an Italian man. And the content resonated in in just in that <laughs> sense. <laughs> and so but I just like find his writing so incredibly raw and truthful and brutal and just exhilarating, shocking. I think I think I love a book that shocks me with its ideas, but also with its humor and and the truth in his desires and impulses. And and so I just started reading other books of his. I read My Manservant and Me, which is just another novella, which is which is actually really hilarious about an 80-year-old dying man who has this very young kind of, I guess, carer who he dresses like, so they both walk around in like matching sweatpants and Nikes. And it's just, it's very funny, but also obviously, you know, underneath that it's tragic. It's about someone who's dying. I guess there's a theme of dying here that I can't ignore. And I think that's, I am starting to write a new book that definitely has dying as part of its theme. And so I think I've been interested in exploring exploring that. And yeah, sort of, I think I like the way Hervé gets really into the sort of the bodily, the kind of like humorous and absurd and grotesque aspects of of a body that is fighting and and struggling and that always interests me when when the content can hold that space of paradox and all the different qualities that make up what would seem to be a horrifying just tragic experience there's just a lot of life and a lot of even euphoria in those descriptions so that's how it came to be but there's still, he wrote so many books. There's still many more that I'm going to try to read in the next few months. And he, you know, he wrote very autobiographical fiction. So this kind of auto fiction thing, obviously, is I find interesting. And and just seeing, you know, the limits that, what are the limits of, of auto fiction? I mean, he talked a lot about people that he knew. And then obviously those people came under fire because of things he said in his book. So all of that is kind of interesting to me as well. He wrote a book called My Parents, which I've heard is pretty brutal. <laughs> so, so just just, <laughs> yeah. seeing, just seeing how far I can push things, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds great. Can you give us the title of this particular book and the author's name one more time? Yes, I'm going to mispronounce his name, but the title is to the friend who did not save my life by Hervé Gibert. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Lexi Freeman, author most recently of The Book of I. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with E.J. Coe, author of The Liberators. In terms of memory, something that I was thinking about was, sorry, I keep going back to personal stuff, but I love talking you about know. personal stuff. <laughs> okay, great. Me too. I wrote, I wrote a memoir. <laughs> I was born in the Soviet Union the other day. We were packing and I found a little collection of stamps that I had as a child. And I have North Korean stamps in there because I have, I could only collect stamps from within communist countries which was actually incredible to see. 
it was really felt like serendipitous that we would be talking today. But something, you know, like something that I think about in terms of memory are the relics that we have that sort of tie us to these to these places, to past selves. And I really feel like in the book, there's like a sense of floating, but then in terms of within the history, within these ideas, within borders, within selves too, within relationships. And then there is like a slight grounding that some of the relics that they sort of come into play at the very end of the book in a very lovely way. So it's this humbug that feels like almost grounds the book in some ways. And, you know, it's weaved throughout. I just wondered what your relationship is to stuff like that. Like, I think I have members of my family who are very much like, get rid of it get rid of it. I don't want to see it. <laughs> I want nothing in this house that reminds me of the place that we came from. I don't want it. And then members of family that are very much the opposite. And I can understand both ways of approaching, you know, these are these are really things that elicit memories for good or for ill. And I was wondering if you have stuff like that, or if there's stuff like that in your family, objects like that, where they provide some kind of grounding for those memories and how you relate to that. That's so beautiful that you found those stamps, that you still have them. I hope you keep them. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I put them in my valuables box. I know. Anytime someone tells me they found something like letters or stamps, they say I immediately try to convince them to write a book about it. But I won't do that to you. I won't sit you down and say, <laughs> there's so much here. We have to investigate it all, you know. But uh, Actually, that's a great yeah. idea. Maybe you should. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's do that off yeah, air. We'll do, I'm interested. We'll do that off air. But the humbug is so interesting, and I, I read this review. Someone sent this review to me, and someone had written about the humbug, about how it's green and vibrant, and how at the end it's described as this vibrant road, this verdant sort of blossoming thing that is handed down from generation to generation. And what's interesting is that they connected that to the description of the DMZ as a place of wounding and incredible pain, but actually it has become almost like a, a global site of incredible beauty because of the marshlands and everything that has grown. There's no sort of human activity there. So in a weird way, it's become this it's not safe, but it's a, it's just wildlife that's grown and it's reinvigorated that area. And so you see all these beautiful animals come and go, especially the birds and connected that part of the DMC. And I just thought that was such an incredible thing that someone could see something like that to see the greenness of that humble and to see it woven through. And so I really appreciate you finding that because I think I don't think it's a very heavy, heavy thing, but it is something that comes up continuously and it is a sign of hope. It's sign of, it's a sign of something, a bit of light seen in maybe one of the most darkest, disturbing places. And that that happens not just on a national level. It happens between humans, you know, just between us when we give each other things. And for my family, maybe, or for me, I had, my parents, I was born and raised here, but my parents left when I was 14, 15 to South Korea for work. And they were only supposed to be gone for three years, but it ended up being five, seven, nine years before I reunited with them again. 
And during that time, I was sort of living, they had moved me about a hundred miles away to this small house in Davis. And I pretended to, you know, go to high school and I would drive and I just pretend that I live with my parents, but I don't. And it was incredibly difficult because I, you know, I drank, I, I smoked, I did a lot of drugs, but I also did a lot of self-harm. I developed a quite a severe eating disorder. And amongst all this sort of pain and grief, my mother would write me a letter every week. And in it was just such beautiful, almost kitty diction, because my Korean wasn't as sufficient at the time, but she would mother me from across the water every week with these letters. And I would initially read them and toss them, or I didn't want anything to do with them. But it's so strange that I would you know, move to LA, I would go to UCI, I would become a, a competitive hip hop dancer. And then one day as I'm leaving college, basically ready to graduate, my teacher introduces me to poetry. And it completely changes the trajectory of my life because I end up moving to the East Coast to pursue poetry and translation. And that's when I find the letters again. I apparently moved with them in a box everywhere. I just didn't know I was doing that. And I ended up translating them and in a way reading them for the first time. And it was important that I read a lot about this in my memoir, but I didn't want to just translate my mother's letters. I wanted to show each of the letters. I wanted a good copy of them in the book because it's not just her handwriting, you know, it's the papers creased in places where I used to, my younger self would cry and you could see where the tears are and where they appear on the ink. And you'd see these little drawings that she made and you see what a grief that was, but also how important it was for me to be able to translate and read them again. And who were you living with? When my parents moved, they moved me in with my brother who was 19 at the time and going to UC Davis. So they moved us into, yeah, a little house together and he would wake up, take me to school. I wouldn't go to school. I would just go to a park for a few hours and he would try to go to class, wouldn't go to class, come back, grab me. We'd have some tacos and yell at each other. You know, we had quite a, a bit of conflict in that home. But I think looking back, he was also a kid. And that was hard to see at the time, but he's, you know, somebody's son. And there would be moments where he would just be sitting, you know, by himself with his head down. And that was an important place for me to get to, to be able to see that because we did have such a difficult relationship for such a long time. This leads actually somewhat perfectly into my next question, which is about the multi-generational nature of this novel. And I think it, it captures really quite well the inchoateness or the inchoate quality of the immigrant experience, of the diaspora experience, you know, which is so many different things, but it can be, for example, that feeling of never quite belonging. And that can be both to a place, to a language, as you were describing. My husband is the son of Cuban immigrants and that kind of like how Spanish was something inside the home. And every immigrant has this challenge, right? That it's like where language crosses and where it doesn't cross. And then as you get older, especially if you were younger, when you move to the new place, your relationship to language has a nostalgic quality. 
it has, uh, you know, it's freighted with all kinds of memory. And then there's, you know, in my husband's case, it's like a kind of real fever over the last like five to seven years to kind of reclaim language and not have it, as he would say, kind of frozen in that moment when he was kind of in kindergarten or first grade, like you were describing in these letters. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit, I keep thinking about the character of Henry, who is Insuk and um, Sungho's son, and how he processes, there's so much that doesn't come across, you know, their families, right? So it's like one of the most intimate and complicated relationships you can have. But there's lots of cultural stuff, expectations, rituals, things like that, that don't cross over. Like I was very touched at the end when Insuk, I believe, is the one that's kind of noticing this, that Songho expects that Henry will take care of him as he gets older. And that becomes kind of clear that that's not exactly something that's going to happen. And also that Henry has seen, Henry has mostly grown up, I think, in the United States and has also seen his parents go through a number of things and is also trying to figure out his own life. So what's the future, the kind of cultural wrangling that Henry goes through that kind of is the the tail out of this novel? Yeah, that's so wonderful. And thank you for sharing that about your partner. I mean, I remember in... In a workshop in New York, my poetry teacher said, if you want to write good poetry, read more poetry. But if you want to write great poetry, translate. I don't know if I'm saying that exactly right, but it was so interesting that language is such a part of our hearts and a huge connection to our past and also ways of relieving some of the grief of the past to allow us to be more present and, and move toward a future that we can reimagine and um, to make language something of our own, you know, that's an important move. It's a powerful one to do. And I only want to support <laughs> your partner in continuing to do that. With Henry, it's so interesting, and I love Henry so much. My dissertation topic was mostly about intergenerational trauma and, and generational trauma. And so the work with Henry was something new that was happening in what I was finding in my research, because a lot of the time when we think of trauma, and that is a very umbrella topic within it, there are sort of other ways to talk about how we pass on maybe pain, violence. But I've also found that <laughs> we also, we might inherit some of these things from, from our families that are painful, but we also inherit really beautiful things. And that seems to be the other half that gets easily lost or forgotten. And I myself forget along the way that you also inherit things like perseverance. You inherit things like a love of language or a sensitivity toward the emotion behind language. And I think we see that with Henry, you know, with Johan and even with Songho's father, you see glimpses of how they see and interact with the world through language or 
through the objects and the landscape around them. And Henry really takes those things. It's almost like there is a mirror in the way the book opens. And then when we first get to see Henry as a adolescent talking about how he reads the valleys, how he draws and he makes these maps. And so in some ways he is such a departure from those who've come before him, but he's also really a really beautiful representation of them as well. And I think what I found is that all the choices that each of us make in this present moment is so important the way it's important for Henry, because it doesn't just affect the future going forward. It changes the meaning of the past. And so with Henry's new choices, it changes the meaning of of the things that had gone wrong, that had been so horrific. It allows him to sort of make a new narrative, make a new story for this family as he goes forward. And I thought that was really something I wanted to explore with him. There's a really beautiful line at the end that I might actually read. It's not at the very end, it's in one of the last chapters. You write, even walking at an uneven pace was a form of communication. How could they erase all meaning from themselves? Yet a meaningless world didn't deprave them as much as a world whose true meaning was lost. And so we started talking about language and, you know, how and when it fails. And on the cover, I remember when I got to the part that explains the cover, which is doves flying through flame, and that it's a reference to something that happened in the Seoul Olympics in the 90s. And so we have these two modes of communication, right? It's language and then communication of like omens and images and how do we interpret both of those things and then you make it even more personal by saying like a form of walking can be communication and of course that's true right there's different ways to walk into a room and you communicate different things even on like that sort of basic non-historical level and I wonder if when you think about like the forms of communication that you have used so writing translating fiction are there ones that you have more faith in or more trust in than others? That's an interesting question. I, I that's really <laughs> fun to think about. I love, you know, being surprised and I and I am surprised. By the way, the cover is so funny because everyone sees it and says this is such a beautiful image. It's such a celebration. But it's not until you get to the 1988 Olympics that it's actually that the doves were burned alive in the Olympic ceremony because they landed on the cauldron and they just, there's a video of it online. <laughs> you don't have to see that, but it's there where the, you could see the, you know, their feet and it's, they're just staying there and your, their bodies are just, they just melt away. You see their shadows. It's incredible to have that connection. And I think it's important that many of the characters are are doves in that way. They don't let go. They don't let go of the cauldron and they're sort of burned alive. To your question about writing and all its forms, about language and images, there is something I come back to and it, and it was taught to me by my first poetry teacher. Actually, it was my poetry teacher that it just completely took me in and um, she 
she sort of sat me down after I left the first week and I brought back about 40 poems. It just felt like a valve opening before I, I didn't do anything like this. And I ended up writing so many. And she said, you know, you really know how to start a poem and fill one out, but you have trouble at the turn. And the turn of a poem is the end of a poem. It's like the penultimate line. And these were poems that I was writing about my mother. And she said, you have to forgive your mother by the end of the poem, or the poem has to forgive you for not. Otherwise, it's not a poem. It's a journal or a diary entry, but it's not a poem. And that lesson, this lesson of magnanimity, being able to get to a place you couldn't get to at the beginning, pushing yourself to even imagine what it would be like to be there and to say the thing that is at times the hardest thing to say. That is such a lesson that took me from poetry to translation to the memoir to even screenwriting. I did some work for an opera and then writing this novel. But if I were to say what is the heart of something that comes back is that, is that I look at the turn now, not just at the end of the poem, but at the end of the novel, at the end of a chapter, at the end of the passage. What is the thing that I can't get to now, but I know I can get to if I push myself? This sort of relates to, to what you just said. Yeah, when I figured out what was on the cover, it really struck me as quite bleak and really dark. <laughs> because the green, you look at it and you're like, oh, some birds flying through it's a beautiful cover right but you so you don't if unless you know that reference you don't you have no idea what it means it's pretty dark but as I think you were saying that somebody had read the connection between the hanbok and the border and certainly I think the ending feels hopeful in a way there's about to be another union in the family there's this the lush greenness of this hanbok and this this woman who's putting it on. There's a marriage. There's this pretty happy child. There's a house and there's a there's kind of a home that they've built, which they've not really been able to do. But I wonder politically how you feel. Because I think something that's difficult is to read, you know, reading this book within the contemporary context of ongoing war. And things feeling pretty bleak, like the doves burning, burning up, feeling not inapt <laughs> uh, as a metaphor. But I wonder if there's, I mean, that thing about forgiveness, that's quite beautiful. But are there other avenues of hope that you turn to both within your work or and politically? It's so funny because I've, I've had a colleague, another writer, read the book and say, your ending is so Korean American, you know, to, to end with hope. But I've had another colleague just say, this is so not Korean at all that you end. It should have just ended with something much more horrific. <laughs> but I think something that stays with me is I read this wonderful book, Survivor Cafe by Elizabeth Rosner. And she's a researcher and author who collects not just historical events in one part of the world, but all of them, every sort of human atrocity up to the present day. And she kind of bridges them together, finding ways in which how do we, as humanity, how do we 
continue from this? And wh- why do we keep continuing? What is it about all of these things that connect us? And something she says is that, well, our human lineage is very tenacious. She describes it as a braid. It's a braid of both destruction and restoration. It's both of those things. And they often seem like they're opposing. But when you see them as this tight braid, you realize that this is all of us. It's us. It's almost in a way why I can do the research and go into these really dark places, look for sometimes really terrifying testimonies, because I know that these things, they, they're braided, they go together. And anything I find that might be too much of a horror or a terror is just a reflection of me. It's a reflection of ourselves. This is humanity. And to say, I don't want to look at it is, I think, saying, I don't want to look at us. I don't want to look at myself. And so it's important to always go there, you know, to go deeply into those moments of destruction in order to find moments of restoration and to to find places of hope, places of imagining, which is so important because sometimes you come from a history where there nothing's ever gone right. You don't know if they can ever go right. And in that sense, you need imagination to imagine that things can be different, that all the things that have happened, it doesn't mean that the future is inevitable, that these are things that they're on our shoulders now in this very moment. And in that way, I think you might say, okay, this, during this time, you're just telling stories and talking. But I think that's such an important part of all of it. You both being here, me being here, us talking about books and stories and asking these questions. What I found is that this is very important. These are the things that have to to continue. They have to keep going. And we have to continue supporting this act because it's part of that lineage. It's a part of us looking at ourselves. I cannot think of a better message to, I guess we're not exactly kicking off 2024, but we're still very young in the new year. So I would love to carry that message through the rest of the year, which promises to be a trying one, but hopefully also, as you're saying, like it's only by turning our gaze to the horror that we can actually rescue hope and the possibility of of a better world. So I want to thank you so, so much for joining us. We've been speaking with EJ Ko author of The Liberators. Thank you so much, EJ, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. This was so fun. We've been speaking with EJ Ko, author of The Liberators. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. And if you're interested in being part of LARB's book club and receiving other wonderful titles like EJ Ko's The Liberators, check out our membership page to learn about the book club and other membership benefits at lareviewofbooks.org backslash membership. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlotten.